Okay, Psalm 56. And the heading says, For the choir director, according to Jonah, Elim, Rehoakim, King, and that is the way the New American Standard words. It's quite differently in the ESV. It says, according to the dove of the far-off terebinths. And it says, Amitkam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, the heading of when David was fleeing from the Philistines in Gath is also in Psalm 34. Psalm 34, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. So Psalm 34, Psalm 56, deal with this time period in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. And you remember there when David ends up at Gath, the city of Goliath, He's recognized, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. This is the one they sang about. They, he comes before Achish. And what does he do in order to get out of that situation? He acts like he's crazy and lets the saliva run down on his beard. And the king says, Do I not have enough madmen there already? What in 1 Samuel 21, 10-15 attributes that to the Lord? Nothing. But in this psalm, we read the Lord is the one in whom he's trusting and the Lord is the one who delivers him. So let's start with verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man is trampled upon me, fighting all day long. He oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps. They have waited to take my life because of wickedness. Cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Then I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings for you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I didn't attempt to really put an outline of that, but you notice that the psalm goes back and forth between his mistreatment from men and him turning to God and asking God for help in this situation. The opening words, Be gracious to me, 
O God. In Hebrew, that's only two words. Be gracious to me, O God. And those same two words that began this psalm in Hebrew began Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 51 is a plea for God to have mercy because of his sins. Psalm 56 is a plea to God to have mercy because of his enemies. It is his enemies and not his sins that is his problem in Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. This particular word for trample here in 56, it's used in verse 1. It's used in verse 2, and it's translated a little differently uh, in some other versions. Um, It has trampled in the ESV, uh, but uh, this particular word is used in 57.3. In 57.3, he will sin... He will sin from heaven and save me. He reproaches those who trample upon me. But it is a word that is not too frequent in the Old Testament. It is used for trampling on the rights of the poor in Amos chapter 2. I believe it's verse 6 or 7. Let me see. Amos 2 and verse um, 7 and Amos 8 and verse 4. But here he feels these foes have trampled upon him. And one thing about the foes in this particular psalm, these foes are absolutely relentless. Notice that the phrase all day long is used in verse 1, it's used in verse 2, it's used in verse 5. In verse 1, fighting all day long, he oppresses me. In verse 2, my foes have trampled upon me all day long. In verse 5, all day long, they distort my words. His foes will not let up. They are perpetual. They are relentless. And it is continual that he faces this opposition all day. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me, for they are many who fight proudly against me. So here again, he states his opposition, his foes, the difficulties that he faces. Verse 3. One of the things that's interesting, and there's, there's two times of this, this phenomenon in Psalm 53, or Psalm 56, excuse me. First time in verse 3. But when the personal pronoun appears, um, when a pronoun appears, it is very emphatic in Hebrew because you can say, I am afraid without a separate personal pronoun. But... In verse 3, when I am afraid, uses a separate personal pronoun 
stressing when I'm in this situation, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Where else could we look in a better place when we're afraid? Maybe the opposite of fear isn't courage. Maybe the opposite of fear is trust. Remember, Jairus comes to Jesus. My little daughter is sick and at the point of death. Will you go with me? Jesus begins the journey. A woman comes up who suffered much at the hands of many physicians and not gotten any better, but gotten worse. And she touches the helm of His garment, thinking, if I but touch Him, I will get well. She touches Him. She's well. But Jesus wants her to know that He knows what has happened. He said, who touched me? And finally, trembling, she comes and acknowledges it. He says, my daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In the meantime, in the meantime, people come from the synagogue official's house and says, your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Only believe. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, in verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. By the way, I counted the word God, the word Elohim is used about seven times in this psalm. So it's used continually. You notice the similarity between verse 4 and verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, is the only time the word Lord or Yahweh is used here. In verse 11, In God I have put my trust, what can man do to me? So, there, the same kind of idea appears in verses 10 and 11. I would say to you there's a little difference. There's a little difference between verse 4 and verse 11. The word for man is different. The word that's used for man in Psalm 56, in Psalm 56 in verse 4, uh, is it's translated mortal man in some versions, but it is a word that means flesh. Flesh. And remember how Jesus, uh, or, well Jesus is quoted in the New Testament, but it's originally in Isaiah 40, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of men as the flower, grass, uh, flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All flesh is as grass. But here he uses this, that, that God, uh, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now one of the points I want to make about that word flesh is sometimes that word flesh is used in contrast to, 
to God or spirit to emphasize that all power belongs to him. Let, let, let me just illustrate. Uh, look first of all, 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32. Okay, we're going to talk about an Assyrian king, Sennacherib. So if I'm talking about Sennacherib from Assyria, who's going to be the king of Judah? Hezekiah. Yes, Hezekiah. But in 2 Chronicles 32, in verse 7 and 8, this is what Hezekiah says to the people. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the one who is gra- for the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now you see the point I'm making. To emphasize that man is flesh, often this idea of flesh is used in contrast to God's power. Because flesh is limited, flesh is weak, and with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to fight, to help us, and to fight our battles. Look at Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31. This, by the way, is in the context of the same historical situation. And here in Isaiah 31, Hezekiah is tempted to send off to Egypt for horses in order to strengthen himself against the attack of the enemy. But notice in verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong but do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. In verse 3, Now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out His hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. So, what you see here, Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 3, their horses are flesh and not spirit. And so this contrast between flesh and spirit is made between men's weakness and God's strength. Let's just look at one more. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 and verse 5. Uh, Jeremiah 17 beginning with verse 5 makes a contrast between the one who trusts the one who trusts in man and the one who trusts in the Lord. In Jeremiah 17 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. A curse is on the one who trusts in man who makes flesh his strength. Is that mankind word? 
than flesh also? Or is it just comparing the two there? Uh, I'm, I, someone can call it up. I could, If you won't call it up, I could read it. I think the word man... I, I, obviously, there's a contrast between man yeah. and God. Uh, and so th- that, that word itself... Uh, refers to man's weakness. My guess is it's the word Adam, but uh, if that's but uh, flesh also indicates man's weakness. But but mankind in emphasis and weakness. Do you see the term there? Okay, yes, it is the term Adam. So, um, but all of all of these texts. Just show us how all if if we can't put our trust in these in this, we can't let that bring our fear either. You see what I'm saying? You know, it can't be in the Lord is with me, I put my trust in the Lord, then what can the flesh do to me? What what questions do you have? I may not have worded that well because I see some inquisitive minds. And are you shaking your head in disagreement, Isaiah, or you are? Okay, what what are you disagreeing about? Just your last phrase. I, I just didn't understand it. You didn't understand it. Okay, what actually did I say? <laughs> is that the point? If is the point? If it's not our ultimate ground of confidence, it can't be the ultimate thing to terrify us either I think that's what I was saying and I probably need to work on how I worded that but there is a good thought behind it <laughs> there is a good thought behind it that may not be, that may not be its final editing form okay y'all are here on the cutting room table of that phrase but, but there is a good thought behind that Bob did you have a no, okay. No, no. Okay. Sarah. I was gonna say, so if it's if you cannot trust in this warrior to be your ultimate protection, you should also not fear this warrior to be your ultimate demise. Yes, okay. That's a good way to say see. Okay. And I think I said that, and Sarah quoted it, as I remember. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anything else? So, so is the man in eleven a different man? I, I, yeah, my 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 point is not that the the concept is totally different. My point is not that the picture is totally different, but my point is that the word is different. So I may have set that up in a false way because let me look in verse uh, in verse twelve, and it uses the term Adam there too, just like Jeremiah seventeen did. So so some of that contrast is still there; it's still valid. And so I have to explore the reason why I made a big deal of it at all, except that I do love the contrast those passages draw. That's what that, to me. That's what's really neat is yes. to see that. Yeah, and, it, it just and then to, you get that connection in there in verse three, and just to see that in all these passages, you have a contrast between putting your confidence in the Lord and putting your confidence in the flesh and as I've often said if we can't trust 
in the flesh to be the ultimate warrior that protects us. It can't be the ultimate warrior that brings our demise either. And uh, so, uh, verse, but verse 5, he goes, now, I want, I want you to think about this. Have you ever in your life been going through life and say, when I'm afraid, I'm putting my trust in the Lord and that settles it for a few minutes? for an hour for a couple of hours and then you're back at the same problem again isn't it interesting the way he mentions the Lord is his trust and then the problem comes back problem resurfaces I'm not going to tell you who said this to me but if I told you who said it to me it would increase the power of the quotation because if there's anyone that I would regard as stable, it would be this person. And he stated that often I've been dealing with a problem and wrestling with a problem and I bring it to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to trust in you to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. And he says that stops it for 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden, I'm worried about that problem again. The declaration made in verses 3 and 4 is one we have to keep coming back to. God help us all. But the problem in verse 5, all day long, they distort my words. And their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life because of wickedness. Cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. And again, in, these enemies don't quit. And that's one reason why it makes, him, makes it difficult for him to leave it with the Lord once and for all. Because he wakes up the next day and his enemies are still going at it. And all day long, verse 5, again that phrase is used, all day long they distort my words. They're distorting my words. They're changing what I'm saying. Things that I'm saying that are innocent and good and noble are twisted and made to be evil and destructive. All day long they distort my words and all their thoughts are against me for evil. This word for thoughts can be used to plans in the book. Sometimes it's used of man's planning against God. It's used of God's good planning for the universe. It's used in two verses consecutively that way. Uh, Psalm 33 verse 10 and Psalm 33 verse 11. One of man's plans and then of God's plans. But, but you see how they are treating him as an animal and they are hunters. They are attacking. They are lurking. They are watching for his steps. They are waiting for his life. Now that word waited, that word translated waited, I found it used 17 times in the book of Psalms. Now here's an easy question. Usually, in those 17 times that it's used in the book of the Psalms, as the writer is waiting, 
Who is he waiting on generally in the Psalms? Waiting on the Lord. Waiting on on God. But here, the enemies are waiting anxiously to bring about his demise. They're waiting anxiously for his destruction. In verse 7, because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. Put down the peoples. Now, he uses this term. This term is used uh, plural. It can be translated nations and maybe in some of your versions. Uh, But maybe one of the reasons that David was so uh, strong against the Philistines in his life and battles against them is because of his experiences at their hands. And ultimately he believes that God is bringing the Philistines down through his hands in anger put down the peoples. What, What thoughts do you have right there? Or questions. Just the all day long, all day long, all day long. And if they're attacking us all day long, then our response should all day long to be returned with, I will put my trust in God. I will put my trust in God. Which is much easier to say than to do. Yes, absolutely. It's always easier to say. But you're right. You're right. And it's something, and we shouldn't be surprised, nor I think feel guilty if our enemies who attack us all day long, we keep having to relearn what we've already learned. We keep having to go back to this thing. Well, and and in that, you, you start at a certain place and you finish up, and you see that in 3 and 4. He starts out, I'm afraid, the end of verse 4. I'm not afraid. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And often not being afraid is simply reminding ourselves that this person cannot do us ultimate harm. It cannot destroy us. And this sometimes is an advantage of people who are older and have had more experience because they can remember other foes and other opponents who have sought to bring them down and who were unsuccessful. And maybe it's a reminder that the present ones will be as well. But each new trial presents new difficulties. Uh, I stated earlier that the emphatic personal pronoun is used in verse 3 when he mentions his fear the other time that it's used in this psalm is in verse 8 in reference to God now unfortunately the NIV omits a reference it omits this word and it should be there because it's emphatic in the Hebrew Uh, you have taken account of my wanderings and put my tears in a bottle are they not in your book he is emphatic emphasizing what God has done and that none of his sufferings have escaped 
the attention of God. None of them have escaped his attention. And there's kind of a word play here. The word taken account in the New American Standard, taken account, and again, I'm looking at the New American Standard, and the word book in verse 8. Now, these are from the same root. This is a verb and the verb take an account and the noun is book. God has made a book in His book. God has written it down in His book. But God has seen every single tear. And God is pictured as preserving them in a book. In a bottle. His tears in a bottle and his experiences in a book. He has recorded them all. One writer said this, Sleepless nights and hours spent in torment and weeping are not endured in vain as far as God is concerned. Suffering as it will is capital invested with God booked by Him and collected by Him. God sees all our trials. He collects all our tears. He records all our painful experiences. None of these things have gone unnoticed by God. And this you is emphatic as he is presenting a picture of a God who is compassion, full of compassion. Yes, his enemies are relentless, but his God loves him deeply. And his God takes record of everything that he does. The New Testament has another kind of expression that reminds me a lot of this. When Jesus said in, this, in Matthew 10, 29-31, He um, talked about how cheap the sparrows were and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father. And do not fear, you are of more value than many sparrows And God has numbered each hair of your head. And whether it be the hairs of our head, whether it be the tears in a bottle, God knows. And God cares. And Lord willing, we'll come back to that a little bit later. In verse 9, My enemies will turn back in the day when I call, and this I know, this I know that God is for me. When His enemies turn back, when He calls on God, and His enemies are turning back, and sometimes that word for turn back, He's used for defeat in battle. It is used that way in Psalm 
44 verse 10 as that passage talks about Israel and says you caused us to turn back from the adversary. And here in 56 verse 9 uh, as they turn back as his enemies and foes turn back in defeat it will be an obvious signal and symbol to him that God is for him. Now, verse 10, very similar to verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. In verse 11, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, this idea, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Look at Psalm 118. Psalm 118 and verse 6. In Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me read it again. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In Hebrews 13, these passages and these ideas seem to be quoted. Listen to verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I will not be afraid. Now, this does use a different word for man than is used for flesh. Uh, the point is not much different. Man's weakness over against God's strength. But he puts his trust in God. He puts his confidence in Him. What can man do? What can man do to him as long as God is his trust and confidence. And he anticipates in verses 12 and 13 of Psalm 56, he anticipates God answering his cry and hearing his prayer and being delivered from his foes. And he says, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. I want you to particularly compare that last verse, verse 13, with the words of Psalm 116. Psalm 116 and verse 8 and 9. Uh, listen to this. Just listen to this and maybe compare it with Psalm 56 13 in your Bible. Psalm 116 verses 8 and 9. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You've rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I'll walk before the Lord 
Lord in the land of the living. You've delivered my soul from death, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before you in the land of the living. In verse 12, he has made vows to God in his time of crisis and he wants to make sure to pay those vows now that God has answered his prayer. Recently in context, we've seen that idea. In Psalm 50 and verse 14, Psalm 50 verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. In Psalm 50 verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me and to him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. Now, I am sure that there are things that we should have commented upon. What questions do you have? What ideas do you want to share there? Anything? So, whenever I first read verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call, the picture I got was the enemies are arrayed against me and I, like, pick up the phone and say, Hi God, it's me. I'm having some issues again. And they they realize, wait, she's calling on God again. We're just giving up and walking away. I mean, that's not exactly the, the actual picture there, but in a sense it It's the it end is. result. Yeah. I think it's the end result that that he is calling upon him in the midst of distress and God is showing he's God, whether it happens right when they first call or or, or when, but but eventually they turn around and leave. Now look at look at fifty five verse sixteen. Fifty five sixteen. As for me, I shall call upon the of God, and the Lord will save me. So we've seen that theme of calling on God just in the previous chapter. Look back to 53.4. In 53.4, Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? So the wicked in Psalm 53 don't call upon God. The righteous in 55 and 56 do call upon God. And God saves in 55.16 and turns back his foes in 56.9. So thank you. What else? Uh, back in to your point in verse 8, uh, Holman Christian says you have recorded... And then says, are they not in your record? Yes. That, that is very good because that tries to convey something of that word play in English. That's very good. Christian Holman standard there. Okay. And 13, you have a chiasm. Okay. You start with death and stumbling and then walk and living. Okay. Look at there. Okay. Uh, chiastic John there, um, there and, and uh, but that, that is good. That is good. That is a that is a, that can also be in a certain sense like that A B B A parallelism, so, which which is a chiasm itself. David, well, verse eight when I see you know, when my enemies are turned back, I think of the word retreat. Mm-hmm. And that's really what that is. 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, they, you know, they turn back, uh, they retreat, they, um, they are defeated. Can, can you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray this, this uh, prayer and getting getting thrown in the flames? And of course, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that's the end of them. Yeah. And God delivered their soul from death. By the way, yeah, that's very that's very good, very good thought. Don't want to pass on that. But when I quoted that, I also remembered a point I wanted to make earlier. The term "my soul" in verse thirteen, but that same Hebrew term for "my soul" is used in verse six. It's translated there in the New American Standard, "my life." In, in verse 6, the enemies were wanting to take his life. They were wanting to take his soul. But in verse 13, God delivered his soul or delivered his life. So his enemies are trying to destroy his life. God's trying to save his life. His enemies are trying to ruin his soul. And God is trying to save his soul. But, but you're right. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be one of many instances in the Bible where we could think about people stating, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And what can mortal man do to me? And ultimately, he even delivers them so that their soul is delivered from death, their feet from stumbling, and they walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Those are good thoughts, very good thoughts, people. And I appreciate that. And we, we come to the point um, where we talk about how these psalms relate to Jesus. And we, we don't want to see things that aren't there, but we want to, to look to, conscious of the fact that the New Testament often applies the Psalms to Jesus. And what are some things that you see in this text and how it applies to the Lord? Sarah? I don't know if it's exactly that, but the first thing I thought of was that Jesus knew exactly what man could do to him. I mean, in a physical sense, he experienced all of those things that man could do to another man. And so it makes it a little bit more, when you think about who's behind this psalm, that, uh, yeah, he knows all of those evil things that could happen to you, and yet Mm -hmm. he says... Don't worry about that. That's not the important part. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's let's come back to the thought there. I think that is a very good thought. I think that is a very important thought. And let's make a couple of other points before this as we're, as we're kind of tracing a life of Christ. Um, what else do you see? Well, when it talks about, you know, I shall not be afraid, you know, what can your man do to me? That reminds me of, you know, Matthew 10, 28. Okay. You know. yeah, Jesus does teach us something, doesn't right. he? He teaches this in Matthew 10, 28 and Luke 12 
Um, so absolutely, we're going to come back to, to, to that. Uh, Micah, did you have your hand up as well? Verse 5, how Jesus' words were constantly being twisted. Okay. Okay, yeah. His words twisted... His enemies continually plotting his death. So you see the same kind of thing the psalmist experienced in Psalm 56.5, Jesus' experience. The same kind of thing uh, that they experienced in Psalm 56.6, he experienced. And if anyone ever experienced this kind of perpetual all day long opposition that the psalm talks about, it is Jesus. So Jesus experiences all the difficulties, all the pain, all the moments of crisis that that this particular uh, psalmist did. And his enemies can be described as people who oppress him and who trample him and who fight proudly against him. But, but, But all of this is tied up. All of this is tied up into what he experienced. But, but going back to the things that Sarah and David were saying, after he experiences all of this, he, in the statement in the psalm, what can man do to me? Well, in his case, they crucified. But the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, these, the reason I'm trying to set this in order, these are things that led to the cross, And here the resurrection shows us an even deeper meaning to verse 4 and to verses 10 and 11. Even if they kill us, they can't destroy us. And uh, David mentions Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot destroy the soul. Fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. One one striking passage to me. And again, God help us to remember this. If we're in the position of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and, and to call this to our mind. But in Luke twenty in Luke twenty one, verses twelve through nineteen, the Bible is talking about Jesus' warning about the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come. And in Luke 21, he talks about some of you will die for your faith in me. And in that same context, he says in verse 18, I believe it is, of Luke 21, not a hair of your head will perish. In the very same context where he said some of them are going to be killed, he said not a hair of your head will perish. Now that's an expression, a proverbial expression used often in the Bible, Old Testament and New, to say no harm is going to come to someone. For example, when Paul was on the ship that was headed to Rome, that that encountered the shipwreck, and the people had abandoned all hope that they were going to be saved, Paul said, not a hair of your head will perish. They knew what that meant. All of them would live safely through the ordeal. Not a hair of your head will perish. The Bible says that even if we're killed, 
for our faith in Him. Not a hair of your head will perish. His resurrection adds a whole new depth to that phrase. What can mere man do to me? What can man do to me? It adds a whole new depth to that. And here in this psalm, God is pictured in Psalm 56a as collecting our tears and writing our tears in a book. God is recording our tears in His record, as John stated. But there's going to be a day when He's going to remove all tears. He's not just going to have a record of them. But He's going to dry them. And we will walk before God in the land of the living. We will be delivered from death not in the sense that this psalm originally intends it to be delivered or rescued from death, from a near death experience, but we will be delivered in spite of the fact that we have died. My soul from death, my feet from stumbling, So I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And the fact that Jesus too can be described as our light and our life shows how he fulfills all of this song. David. And at the very end of his life, in Luke 23, 46, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Yes. So he fully... Trusted, yes. He he trusted completely in God, and God rescued him. God delivered him. God turned back his enemies and his foes, and gives him victory. John, um, you know Acts two quotes Psalm sixteen. Uh, where it talks about not abandoning abandoning his soul to Hades. Makes yeah. me think of the same idea there about delivering his soul from death. Yes, that's right. Not delivered. Um, uh, and it also, Psalm 16 has the wording. Psalm 16 has the wording. I set the Lord always before me. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm recalling if I'm trying to compare that with I walk before God, but there are there yes there are similarities between Psalm 16 and those verses 8 through 11 and Psalm 56 verse verse 12 and 13. It, it occurs to me that in verse 6 it says, "They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps." And one of the things that the Pharisees and such were said to do was be like to be watching him all the time and everything yes. that he did. So that also fits in with that whole, you know. In one of the passages that Sarah is Luke eleven fifty three and fifty four. They were watching him. They're investigating him. They twisted his words. 
um, remember how they come to him and says, oh, we know you're a teacher that doesn't show respect for anybody and is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, give me the coin. He said, whose who's picture's on it? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. To God what belongs to God's. And yet, just two chapters or three chapters later, they're saying, he said, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. They're twisting his words. They're watching his steps. They're plotting for him. And even then, they've got to be dishonest. They've got to be dishonest. You know, watch it when people are dishonest about what they're stating. And, and let me tell you just in the news the other day. How many of you heard of the case? This football coach in Washington was fired. This case comes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court decides in his favor. And some, oh no. It's now okay to compel these children, force them to join in this or they're going to be punished. No. That wasn't what was under discussion. It was under discussion whether he had the freedom to pray. And thankfully they decided, yes. But you see, when you see people... And I hate to say this, but I've seen a lot of young Christians repeat that line. When you see people, and I don't think, I think they're doing it ignorantly because I wrote a couple of them and they, the way they responded, I don't think that they intended to distort the truth, but those who stated the original thing that they copied and pasted, they were distorting the truth. But when somebody's got to be dishonest in order to make their point, it might be a good picture that their point is wrong. But anyway, thank you for being a part of this. And what a blessing to study this together. And Bob, would you lead us in prayer as we close? And then, John, do we have a song? We have a song. Okay. Let's pray together. Oh God, your your word is amazing, and as you are, and Heavenly Father, every time we we uh, quiet ourselves and look into it, our hearts are touched by your amazing love for us, and your wisdom for living, and your intention for each and every one of us. It pours forth from every page and from every paragraph, Father. Thank you, God, for your written word, your mind written down, that we can understand it and that we can see you and love you and live for you. Oh, God, that is our heart's desire. Help us do that, Father. Uh, Fill us full of your wisdom and a burning desire to live like your son did while he was here on this earth. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for all you do for us. May your hand be upon us and may our uh, may your name be on our lips as we uh, uh, leave this place. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.